0: If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of John, 1 John, chapter 5. The book of 1 John, chapter 5. It's right near the end of the New Testament. We are wrapping up uh, the last of seven weeks through a series, Real Christianity. Uh, I feel like it's been two weeks since I've been here, and that's true, uh, because last Sunday I was away for the day with my wife. Leslie and I celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary, and I was very happy about that. So thank you. I know that some of you heard about it because during the church services, I was getting text messages from some of you. So somebody announced it in the service last week. I'm guessing it was Pastor Rob, but I started getting text messages from people. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. I was like, hmm. So it was good. I really appreciated that. Thank you very much. We had a nice day, Um, but it's nice to be back with you all as well. Um, But we are in a series called Real Christianity, and we're wrapping it up here today, our final Sunday, Uh, and we're asking the question, what does a real Christian look like? Some of you maybe have spent years and years and years in the church, and maybe you think you know what Christianity is all about. Maybe some of you, this is your first or second time in a church. I don't know. What does it mean to be a Christian? Statistically, we see, as you've heard this every week, that 70-plus percent of Americans identify themselves as Christian. 70-plus percent. And yet, when you look at the condition of our country, you look at the things we struggle with, you look at the, uh, the evil And the struggles and the poverty and the perversion that's there, how can 70 plus percent of our culture identify as a Christian? And yet we still struggle with the things that we wrestle with. Now, some of that is directly linked to the fact that we live in a broken world. And as long as we're on this side of eternity, there's going to be sin here. But Pastor Rob did pose that question a few weeks ago. Would it look different if 70 percent of our population were follower of Jesus or look like Jesus? And would it make a difference? I think it would. I think at some point in our Christian walk, we've, we've, we've marginalized the Christian faith. Not everybody, but I think the larger expression of Christianity has become that it's about a religion to identify with as opposed to a, a faith to follow. Jesus came. Jesus Christ came to die for you and I So that by giving our lives back to him in return, putting our faith in his work on the cross, we become students of Christ. And Christian means little Christ. In the New Testament where it says they were first called Christians in Antioch, that was a derogatory term. You little Christian, you. You know, you little Christian. It's kind of like, you know, rubbing someone's head. You know, like when you're little. Then Anyone have like when I was little, my cousins didn't call me Paul. They called me Paulie because I was from North. Uh, I was from New York. I was from Long Island. I grew up in Long Island until I was like 12 years old, 13 years old. So they'd call me Paulie. And I'd go up to them, and they'd go, oh, Paulie. And they would, like, touch my head when I was a little kid. It's kind of, like, humiliating a little bit, you know? Like, last time. Then, then I saw some of them I moved away. I didn't see until I got into college. And they came to my wife and I uh, engagement party. And I still remember some of them coming up to me, and they're like, it's Paulie. It's Paulie. And then I'd walk around the corner, and their family would be like, oh, shh. He's not poorly anymore. He's poor. He's not poorly. He's always little poorly to me. And they'd want to still do the head rubbing thing. And I was like, stop today. It would be actually kind of fun because they wouldn't have anything to rub on. But my point in saying that is that Christians were kind of like a derogatory term. You little Christian, you to be like Christ is really what it's about, though. Today, we can stand proud and tall saying if we truly are a Christian, we're supposed to resemble Christ. We're supposed to look like Jesus. That's the whole point. We're not supposed to just believe that Jesus died on the cross. We're not just supposed to believe he rose from the dead. We're supposed to become a student of Christ. That's what a real Christian is. Students of Christ see what Jesus did, and they do it. Now, that doesn't mean our works are the things that save us today, because there's so many religions in this world that use works as the condition for saving If that makes sense. What you do determines how far you get when you die. And that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gift for you and I. That if we choose to believe in the work of Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. But just because we are saved at that point isn't the end of the story. After we are saved and we've given our lives to Christ, letting the old self die, we begin to live new by letting him change us to look more like Jesus. I want to look more like Jesus at the latter years of my life on this earth than when I first gave my life to Christ. I was thinking about this just the other day. Some of the things I said and did and some of the things I thought were okay, and I remember thinking about just the idea of me having a conversation with someone that I had maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I could say, I could, I could never do that today. God wouldn't let me have that kind of a conversation or be a part of that kind of thing or, or expose myself to those kinds of situations that happened 20 or 30 years ago, because as we continue to walk with Christ, he changes us to look more like himself. Does that make sense? Real Christianity is about being transformed, and we've looked at all different actions over the last number of weeks about the difference between light and darkness, and real Christians walk more in the light, and they walk away from the darkness, and how we're supposed to behave like children, not act like a child, but behave like real children of God, to walk with a childlike faith. We've talked about testing. Real Christians have to test between truth and counterfeit, because this world People will identify themselves as Christians. Many people will identify themselves as Christians, but we have to know what the gospel really says so that we can differentiate between the truth and counterfeit. And that's important for us. Pastor Rob has talked about what it means to just be authentic and to be real and to let the truth of God come through your life. And today we're talking about what I call being confident. Being confident. We're talking about confidence today. Today is not about what we do. It's about a reminder, a refresher as to who we are in Christ. If you've given your heart to the Lord, if you've trusted in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, what can you be assured of? What can you be confident in? What are you confident in today? Maybe you're a strong athlete or a musician. Maybe you have some great talent or a journalist, or you're a great, you have the great ability to serve. Maybe it's your job or your workplace. I've met many people that are incredibly confident in their work because they've honed that skill for decades. But then in other areas that they're not too comfortable with, they kind of shy away or they quiet down from, and that's understandable. What are you confident in today? Are you confident in your abilities? Maybe you're confident in the abilities of others, of family or friends. What influences your ability to be confident? Thinking about that for me, I was thinking a few things influence my ability. One uh, is control, just kind of the nature of reality. If, If you have control, your confidence level can go up or go down, right? So if you know that you're really, really, really good at something and it's your job to accomplish it, you can have a strong confidence in that because you know you're gifted at it. You know? And, and that works different in other situations. I was thinking about, you know, like, like uh, something I'm not very good at. No, I, I wouldn't, you wouldn't want me to be like your fashion designer. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do well at that. I wouldn't do well at that. If I had like four different types of shirts and like four different types of pants, and they just changed colors, I think I'd probably be okay with that. Can I get an amen from our guys, some of us? <laughs> Some of you are like, I get that. You know, I get that. Now, I want them to look different and everything. And over the years, I've been growing and learning in that. But I wouldn't be the guy to do that. Or like a wedding planner. You know, like those wedding planners, like those TV shows where they just, they're doing all that. I just get me out of the way. And I'll just do whatever you want me to do. I remember doing a wedding in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. And I said, what, what do you want me to do? And they're like, you just stand there. And I was like, okay. And then what do you want me to do? And then this lady was like. Just all this stuff was happening. And this goes here and this goes here. And I was just like, this is awesome. I'm like, all I have to do is open up my book. And do you? Do you? You are. Let's go. And that's all we had to do. And it was over. It was 20 minutes. I'm not kidding. I felt like I was in a Jewish wedding. 20 minutes. It was over. Just like that. My dad, everyone's on his side is Jewish. So I just have the history there. So I just know. They're short weddings. What are you confident in? History is one of the things as well, not just your, um, your personal control, but history is something as well. What have you experienced in the past to determine whether it's going to be a reliable indication of the future or whether it's not going to be an indicator of the future? How many of us get on an airplane and travel across the country or the world and have a confidence that we're going to land on the other place? though there are accidents that happen, we know with a very good certainty level that we're probably going to be fine because over and over again, we see the track record is success over and over and over again. I'm dating myself a little bit, but back in the seventies and the eighties, there was a car that was made by the Ford motor company called the Pinto. Does anyone remember the Pinto? Yeah. One of the ugliest cars ever made during that time. That was an ugly looking car, man. That car was known for something, and it wasn't its good looks. You know what it was known for? If you rear-ended that car, it would blow up. That's the truth. You can look it up because there was a filler where the gas neck was, and the filler neck, when it got rear-ended, would crack. And if it cracked, it would actually allow gas to leak out. And if there was a spark, it would start a fire, and it could explode. How many of you want to buy a Ford Pinto after hearing that story? Nobody wanted to buy a Ford Pinto after that story. Then the Nova came out. When Ford came out with the Nova in the 60s, and then they sold it in Central America and in Mexico, and nobody would buy it. Do you know why no one would buy the, Ford, uh, the, the Chevy Nova? Not the Ford. The Chevy Nova? Because in Spanish, Nova means doesn't go. <laughs> this is true. Rosa, am I wrong? I'm right, right? It means no. It means no go. Why are you going to buy a no-go? And that's what they did. So they had to change the name to something else. Experience influences our ability to be confident in something. This morning, I want to talk about being confident in Christ. We need to be confident in Christ. You can be confident in Christ. If you are a believer, here's what I want you to walk away with. Five things. And I'm going to touch on these things briefly this morning. Number one, why should we be confident? Because we can know God. We can know God. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's so important for us to know this morning, folks, but eternal life doesn't begin when we breathe our last breath on this side of eternity. Eternal life, Jesus says, begins right here, right now for all who believe. Look what he says in John seventeen three. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is he saying there? We, and this is, this is the myth that people have sometimes. If I go to church and I put my time in and I, and I say a prayer or check off a box and I live my own life, I'll experience eternal life when this life is over. I was a big fan of the Indiana Jones series uh, many years ago, and some of you maybe have watched those. Well, the third one in the series was The Last Crusade, and The Last Crusade was the search for the Holy Grail. Remember that, the search for the Holy Grail. And what was the search? Why were they so passionate for? Because if you drank from the Holy Grail, the cup of Christ, he gave you eternal life. And it was such a perverted way of looking at what that actually meant. It didn't mean that you live forever on this side of eternity. Lord knows, I don't want to look like this forever. I don 't want to feel like how I feel sometimes forever warming up in the morning and, you know, doing like this and all your little knuckles, crack, 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 crack and your stiff backs. I don't want to look like that. I don't want to be like that. Eternal life isn't about just being in our physical bodies forever. Jesus says eternal life is that you can know God and not know God in some general term. You can have a relationship with God, the one who made you, who created you in his image. Do you know that today you can know God? One of our core values is that God is real and he desires to be actively involved in our lives. So dismiss whatever you've heard about Christianity before in the Christian faith to say things like, well, I go to church and maybe God's out there and hopefully on the other side, maybe no, no. He every day wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to speak to your heart through the still small voice of his spirit, through his word, through others around you, through prayer, through prayer, through circumstances he will if our eyes are open to watching what god is doing around us he will communicate to you why because he gave his son as a sacrifice so that you and i could do that he wants you to know him you can know god i can know god we can have a relationship with god you see it all through scripture all the way back from adam and eve in the garden it says right in genesis adam and eve walked with god in the garden he walked with god She walked with God. And then when they sinned against God, what did they do? They hid from God. Thousands of years later, after this happened, we still do the same thing, don't we? When we sin, we hide. When we're close to God, we're not sinning. When we choose sin, we run away from God. We isolate ourselves. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Sin and hide is the MO from then, and it's the same thing we do today. But Adam and Eve knew God. There was a man in the Old Testament named Enoch. The Bible says He walked with God, and then he was no more. I can't wait to meet this guy on the other side of eternity. What was it like for you to just walk with God, and then it was like the first sci-fi Star Trek thing, and then he was gone? What did that look like? I want to see what that looked like. Did God just beam him up or something? He didn't die, the Bible said. Moses, the man who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, Walked through the Red Sea. He spoke with God figuratively, face to face, as a man speaks with a man. King David, the man after God's own heart, he spoke to God. He asked God. He pleaded with God in his prayer of forgiveness in Psalm 51. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't let your presence come from me and move away from me. He knew that the presence of God was the thing that delivered him and the thing that made him different from the nations around him because Moses said the exact same thing. And Jesus said that it was a good thing after he left this earth for him to go. He said before he left that he needed to leave. Because when he would leave, the Holy Spirit would come and fill in the hearts of everyone who chose to believe. Now the presence of God wasn't walking amongst people, which is Jesus. His name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. But instead, the Spirit of God can dwell in the heart of every believer. Today, if you've trusted in Christ, the presence of God dwells in you. Do you know that you can have a confidence to know that you are never alone? I have a confidence to know that I am never alone. And that's important for me to know because there are times in my life and it happens more frequently than not where sometimes I just feel alone or isolated or like there's nobody that understands what's going through my mind or the circumstance. Can I tell you if you feel like that sometimes God always gets it because he let his son pay the price on the cross. So that you could be in relationship with him and he never leaves you and he never abandons you. And when you feel like you're at your lowest point or you feel like you're discouraged and nobody gets it, Jesus always gets it. That's encouraging. We need to be confident that we can know God because he hears us and he loves us. The second point, be confident because he hears us and answers our prayers. Be confident because he hears us and he answers our prayer. Verse 14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now that's a tough one for people sometimes because prayer is sometimes this, this, this mind exercise and people struggle with prayer. You know, the two things in our faith that can transform us the most is reading God's word and prayer. And what are the two things that people struggle with the most in the, in the Christian church? Reading God's word and prayer. People have an easier time serving. Tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. No, I want you to, and we, we want to serve because it's part of what it means, but reading God's word, being open to the word, letting the word transform you and I is something that people struggle with a lot prayer, real prayer. I don't just mean learning a rope prayer. How many of you ever learned a prayer when you were little? Maybe that you can even remember today. I had these prayers that I prayed when I was little and I still have this one. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. Anyone remember this? I pray, say it with me. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. I was like five years old. I was praying that prayer. My mom's like, if you should die before I wake. And I was like, okay. I was <laughs> oh, five. It's not a bad prayer. You know, rub a dub dub, thanks for the grub. Like, whatever you pray, I don't know what you do. Everyone does something different, right? The point of prayer, though, is it's supposed to be an intimate relationship between you and God, between me and God. The point of prayer is to remind us that He made a way for us to communicate with Him, the Father. And the point of prayer is not just that we just give him our desires and just talk to him about our wants and our needs, but we become broken before him. So there's a posturing of our heart that matters in prayer. And the Lord's prayer summarizes this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And deliver us from temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? What is he saying here in this prayer? The prayer that the Lord's prayer is is not necessarily a script. It's just a model of all the components that matter for a dynamic relationship where the posturing of our heart should always be with our hands open. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name. How great is God? We sang about that this morning. He's a good father. He's a good father. He's a good father. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not about my will, but my hands stay open like this to you, God. And if you want to put something in it, you can. And if you want to take something out of it, you can. Give me my daily bread. Why? Because I can't do it myself. My hands are still open. You see what's happening here? We're not praying, God, give me the strength to provide for myself. No, he says, give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me of my debts as I'm supposed to forgive those who have offended me. Again, easy or hard, but it requires this. Sometimes we go to God with a posturing, sometimes like this. I don't know what God's going to do, but I've been praying and nothing's happening. Sometimes we go to God like this. I asked for it and it didn't happen. And now I'm like this before you, God. And these aren't the postures. When the scripture talks about being able to pray, that he hears us and he answers us according to his will, it's when we have our hands like this. What better model we have than Jesus himself, who said, as he, stood in the, as he prayed in the garden before he was arrested, he said, Father, if there be any other way, right? That's what he said. If there be any other way, take this cup from me. What was he saying? I don't want to do this. He knew what crucifixion would mean to his physical body. He knew the torture that he was going to endure. And what was he saying? I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to subject myself to that kind of physical pain and torture. But then he said, but not my will. Yours be done. Can I tell you, when our posturing of our hands are like this, and we pray to God like this for every circumstance and situation in our lives, he hears us, and he answers us. And we can be confident in knowing those things. It's not a blind type of faith. It is a trust, just like we sang, good, good father, and what Pastor Matt was saying. When we say he is perfect in all of his ways, it is a choice to trust God that he is in control. Be confident to know that he hears you. Be confident to know that he answers prayer. The next thing on the list is this be confident in knowing that we are no longer slaves to sin. This is a huge one. Verse 16 If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All he's talking about here is the kinds of sin that physically leads to a physical death. That's all he's talking about. He's like, I'm not talking about actual sins where someone actually dies. I'm not talking about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. And then he says in 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. What he's trying to say here is that we have to be reminded of the fact Though we live in a broken world, we live in a world where there is sin, and there is temptation, and there is struggle, and there is persecution, and all of the things that we deal with, we are not bound to it any longer. You can be confident to know that when you give your heart to Christ, and you choose to follow him, all of those things that once held you in bondage, you do not ever have to stay in bondage for any longer. The chains are broken, And the devil knows that our chains get broken in those situations. That the chains can be broken. That the authority that we have through knowing Christ can break every one of those chains. And we can walk in a spirit of peace. We can walk in a spirit of holiness. The temptations don't have to determine our future. Persecution doesn't have to determine our outlook and our mindset. Accusations don't have to define who we think we are in our minds. And we don't have to walk around with an attitude of condemnation any longer. The number of people I've talked to over the years who won't go to a church simply because they think the roof will fall on them does not really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the truth of the matter is, if that was the standard, the roof would fall on every one of us. That's the beauty of the gospel. In our small group that we're doing the cherishing each other. I think it's a beautiful picture how, the, the, how Gary Thomas separates the difference between love and cherishing and love being a decision, a commitment that people make. And cherishing is, is the showcasing of the good things of the individual. Kind of um, you know uh, putting them out there to display all the good things. To raise them up to be the person that they're really called to be. We talk about love a lot and love is a commitment but cherishing is to showcase that we see in and, and we look at this and we recognize that sin sin wants us to stay, or the devil wants us to stay in sin. The devil wants us to stay at a place where, we're, where we think that we're bound and our identity is, is not who we're supposed to be in Christ. But God loved you and God loved me enough so that he didn't have to wait for us to become lovable. He loved us before we were ever lovable. That's beautiful. That's the message of the gospel, guys. You are lovable and loved by God before you would ever been able to do anything to become lovable. And the reality of it is, there's nothing that you or I could have done to become lovable. He talked about this in our small group, about cherishing to say God made us and cherished us before we became lovable. And by him cherishing us, we became lovable. And the same thing applies to us in our spiritual walk. We need to become lovable by letting God love us. And recognizing that we're not bound to it. So recognize that when you're tempted, you can never be tempted beyond what you can bear. Why? Because Satan always has to operate within the boundaries and limits God allows in the life of every believer. He does not have freedom outside of the boundaries that God gives him. And the Bible says that he will never tempt us beyond what we can bear. We have to be willing to choose life and not choose death, though. We have to be willing to walk with God and not succumb to the things around us. We have to be willing to be violent, if you will, not in a warlike way, but intentional and aggressive to be hard-lined about the things that we know that we struggle with. We recognize in Scripture that persecution, though sounds bad on the outside, Romans 5 says, leads to suffering. Suffering or suffering or persecution leads to perseverance. I'm sorry. Perseverance leads to character, and character reveals hope that we have in Christ. We have to be reminded of those things to make the choices that matter, to renew our minds by recognizing Jesus does not condemn us for our sin. He sees us as holy and righteous. We are justified through his Son. Don't walk away with a condemnation in your heart. He made us a new creation. And when he says new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he means you and I are a new creation. If anyone be in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, but we need to put those decisions and those guardrails in place to make the right choices. I have to make the right choices. Every year in January, people will make New Year's resolutions. How many of you have ever made a New Year's resolution? Just put your hand up if you ever made a New Year's resolution. Okay, how many of you ever... Now, keep them up. Keep them up for a second. Keep them up if you ever made a new... Now, take them down if you ever didn't follow through completely on that New Year's resolution. Look at you, all these people, right? There's something that I made a resolution for, I didn't do it. Why? Because the resolution was horrible, right? It's the resolution's fault. Let's blame the resolution for being a bad resolution. It never should have been there, you know? No way. It's never the resolution's fault. Usually, we don't keep our resolutions because... We don't walk the walk because we get tired or we fall short or we don't put the right accountability in place. You know how important it is for us to be accountable to do the right things and to say the right things, to make the right choices, to be intentional. Think about one of the practical examples that always comes to mind is Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. Some of you have exposure or experience about financial peace, but he's very specific when people come into financial peace and their their budgets are a mess, or maybe they have no budget, or they're in debt up to their eyeballs. What does he tell them to do with their credit cards? Anybody know what he says to do with their credit cards? Throw them out. Cut them up. (gasps) What? This is like liquid gold, you know, or whatever. Like, what do you mean? Plastic gold. How in the world could I live without my credit card? He says, if you want to change your situation, you need to be intentional with your situation. Cut up your cards if you can't balance and have a healthy financial situation. Yeah, but you don't know. No, if we make excuses for our situation, we will never see it changed. And he uses that as such a great example. Credit cards. I mean, I know people that use credit cards, and, you know, we... I used a credit card years ago when God was calling me to go to Tanzania here through the church. And we were able to put some of our building program on my card. And the church, instead of paying the vendor, paid me. And the board agreed to that because all the cash back money I got helped pay some of the airfare ticket to go teach in a Bible school in Tanzania. There's creative ways that you can use some of this stuff and not cost you a single dime. But for people that don't know how to manage their finances, that are always trying to get ahead or they're always behind the eight ball, Dave says cut them up Throw them away. You will never regret it if you make the hard choice. What do we need to cut up and make the hard choice for in order for us to be able to walk no longer as slaves? What are the things that God has in your life that he's put his finger on to say, here's the area you struggle with. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a self-image. Maybe it's a purity thing. Maybe it's something relationally with someone. I don't know. Maybe it's whatever. Whatever. All I'm saying about that is that we can't look backwards all the time and point to what the things are that have failed us as an excuse for why we can't change moving forward. And it's never okay, and I am not speaking to you on this, I'm with you on this. It's never okay for us to say, I'm never going to be able to change. I've always been this way, and it always will be that way. I don't believe that for a moment. But can I tell you in the heat of it, it's easy sometimes to want to think that. That is not the gospel that we see in the word. That is not what Jesus died for. He died so that we could be free from the bondages of sin, oppression, and condemnation. Amen? That's so important for you to hear today. When he spoke to Cain in the book of Genesis, Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4-7, he says this to Cain as he was jealous over his brother Abel. Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This is God speaking to Cain. What is he seeing? I see the temptation. I can see your heart, because God sees our heart. We can't see the heart of other people, though we think sometimes we know what their motivations are. God sees our heart, and he saw the heart of Cain, and he saw the envy he had from his brother, and was rising up with him, the jealousy and the bitterness. And he said, if you do what is right, you notice what he says? If you choose to make the right choice, sin is still crouching at your door, and it wants to have you, but you need to rule over it. One translation says you must master it. You know, in Christ, sin has no power on us. Sin has no power over us, but if we need to do things extreme, then we should do it extremely for us to be able to walk in freedom. Walk in freedom this morning, and don't be a slave to sin. Make the hard choices. Men, women, put people around you that can hold you accountable and walk out this life. One of the worst things that we try to do is fix it on our own, and we just say, well, if I just try harder, I don't want to tell anyone because it's embarrassing, and we try to do it ourselves. And the tactic of every historical war is that the generals and the armies will always look to pick the people out on the peripheral first. They'll always look to do that. In silly ways, nature even shows us that the people in the core are going to be safer than the people on the outside. That's why the people on the front line get the most woundedness and damage because they're the ones taking the hits first. If you want to be accountable to someone else, you're going to ensure the fact that there's a better chance of you overcoming whatever it is that you struggle with. But it's hard to be transparent. Find some people around you that can be in your court and in your corner. If you struggle with something that's coming into your house, get rid of it. If you can't stop changing the remote to the channel that continues to give you a problem, turn off your cable. (gasps) Big gasps, right? You want me to do what? But what about who cares? What does Jesus say about losing your soul? What benefit is it for a man who gains the entire world, but what? Forfeits his soul. I'm not talking about the sin being a disqualification for salvation. I'm saying we have to reprioritize the things that are more important. The spiritual things have to be the priority. And if they're things that we absolutely cannot do, we can't guard ourselves against, get rid of them. Get rid of them. Shut them down. Kick them out of your house. Make a change. Do what you have to do so that you don't allow yourself to go down that road. Amazing that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Pluck it out if your eye causes you to sin. If your hand causes you to sin, what does he say? Cut it off. Now, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Physically, I don't want to do that. But what is he saying spiritually? Be intentional because you have the ability to master the temptation. You can stand, not on your own strength, but you can say, that cross is here and that blood was shed so I don't have to stand in the presence of this sinfulness and I'm not bound to this with a chain anymore and I'm going to walk the other way. You can walk away from it if you choose to all throughout scripture. You see that people didn't just walk. They ran, they ran from sin. And sometimes we just kind of like do like that, you know, we're like, Oh, it's sinful. You know, and Jesus says, run, run the other way. Are we willing to run? Are we willing to run? Listen, that's, gonna, that's, that's hurtful, man. That's going to cause some... That's a difficult thing to do sometimes because sometimes it means we have to say no to certain things that we like because they can open the door to things that will hurt us. And you only know what your boundaries are. I don't know what they are for you. I know what mine are, and I need people around me that know me to be able to tell me what they are for me as well so that I can say no to these things. And I'd rather walk through earth with one eye and one hand and be holy before God. That's my heart's desire anyway. doesn't mean I do it all the time. Than to walk through life with two eyes and two hands and just walk in the muck of sinfulness without pursuing holiness. We are no longer slaves to sin. Let's celebrate that today. The next thing on the list, we belong to God. We belong to God. Be confident in the fact, church, that you absolutely belong to God. What does that mean? Bible says that we're children of God in 1 John 3. Look at verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. See, when we don't know our true identity, it can be the greatest tactic Satan uses against us. Who are you today after trusting in Christ? Are you still the same old John? Are you still the same Sally? Are you still the same old Paul? No. The Bible says if any man or woman be in Christ, they're what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. So what we have to be reminded of is that we are affiliated with, through adoption, the king of the universe. Think about this. The king of the universe, guys, we are affiliated with through family. He is our dad. He is in control. He is the one. And that is a, a renewing of our mind for us to remind ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to walk around every day of your life going, I'm a child of God. Ooh, look at me. Bless everybody. Woo-hoo-hoo. You don't have to do it. That's silly. You know. And there are some people that are just like that. They're just naturally kind of like, everything's like, woo-hoo, I love Jesus, and that's great. It doesn't mean you have to be like that. But it also doesn't mean that you should be like this either. I love God, and I'm a child of God. Life is just always hard. Somebody give me a drink. I'm so tired. I just, I can't go on. But bless Jesus, I just made it to church. Oh God. Oh, that song. Just need that song. Oh, I need that song today so bad. Oh, life is just so hard. Oh, life is. Come on. Anybody guilty of that at some point? Hello. My hands up. I've done that before. I feel like Jesus looks at me and sometimes and says, I don't even recognize you, son. (laughs) Or as James says, it's like the person that looks at himself in the mirror, sees who they are, and as soon as you put the mirror down, he totally forgets who they are. That's what happens when the church acts like that. What if we walked through our lives saying, he is God. I do belong to him. His presence is in me. And it doesn't matter what's happening around me. I can feel the weight, please. I can feel the hurt. I can feel the, the, the accusations. I can feel the temptation to want to move in the wrong direction. But I will not be moved because in the midst of all the opposition I feel, I still know who's king of kings and lord of lords. That's the way to look at it. So when people come up to you and they go, oh, your life's just all perfect and everything's great. That's not biblical. Our lives are never going to be perfect. Jesus said, in this world, you will have what? challenges and trials, but what? Take heart. I have overcome the world. So it's not that all the problems go away. We just go, Hey, the problems aren't as big as Jesus is. Jesus is more powerful. I'm going to trust in you when my heart feels aching. And I feel like I just want to shed tears. And there's Bible, the Bible has so many examples in the book of Psalms of people that shed tears for the Lord. God, where are you? But my hope is still going to be restored in the Heavenly Father. That's real Christianity, to know that in the midst of pain, trial, and struggle, he is still in control. That's the peace that passes all understanding. Know that you belong to God. If the worship team can come up as we get ready to close in a few moments. I think of David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath. As David stood, this little ruddy guy stood against the Philistine who was over nine feet tall, it says in the book of 1 Samuel. And as he intimidated the entire nation of Israel, the Philistine did, David stood before him and said, You come against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I come against you. Look what he says. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. What is he saying here? In the name of is as a representative of. David looked at a, as a giant in front of him and said, you are so powerful in who you think you are, but I serve the God of gods, the great God, the powerful God, the one who is bigger than all things. In the book of Ezra, there was opposition when Israel came back to rebuild the temple after being in exile for over 70 years. And they came and they started rebuilding their temple in the area of Judah. And the opposition from their enemies came and began to speak lies into the situation. And they got the situation shut down by going back to the king of Persia and saying, they shouldn't be doing this, and they shut it down. Ten years later, they started rebuilding again. And look what the enemies of God said about the temple and of God himself. Verse 8 of Ezra 5. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and making the timbers and the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. You know what I love about that? I love about it that the enemies of God recognized the authority that came through Yahweh more than the people of Israel even did. They went to the leaders who could stop it and say, you know that temple in Judea? that was built many years ago to not just any god. They had lots of gods in Babylon and Persia. Gods of stone, gods of wood, gods that they worshipped in different forms. They're saying, no. You remember the great God? The great all-powerful God? They're rebuilding his temple. Time out. This is going to be bad news for us. They knew that God was big enough and great enough and strong enough. Do we know that this morning? That we belong to the one Who's big enough, great enough, and strong enough. And lastly, we know the true, the one true God. We know the one true God. Verse 20 says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You know what's so beautiful about this last confidence that we have? is that we're going to take in a few minutes and the worship team is going to sing and then we're going to break. We're going to celebrate with three people that are being water baptized today because they are making a declaration today that they don't just serve a God. They serve the one true God. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is truth in knowing the one true God. Would you stand this morning as we get ready to go into our baptism time. Everyone who's here this morning that's participating in our baptism, if you could make your way to the back as we get ready to start the baptism, we're going to turn it over to our worship team who will lead us in this final song today.